All right. Hello, everybody. As you can obviously tell, I am not Travis. I am Shahina Giovanni. Uh, so once a month, I will be coming on here for everybody and we will be uh, guest hosting Travis's show. Travis obviously has built an incredible podcast uh, to a ton of excited viewers, and I'm just very grateful to be a part of it. We're going to do a little bit of a Q&A. Obviously, this is my first time hosting the pod. Uh, for those of you who don't know, I'm a coach based in Montreal, Canada. Uh, I work with a bunch of PGA Tour, European Tour, Champions Tour players, and so on. Um, and I wanted to start this off just with a, your classic Q&A. You know, I posted up some questions up on social media regarding, um, you know, any sort of topics ranging from, um, you know, things about the golf swing to things about myself to obviously, um, you know, more technical details. But we're going to get into that. Um, I would love to to jump right in. So uh, first thing I want to do is just give a special shout out to Travis, um, obviously, for inviting me on the show. Travis is a wonderful coach, uh, does a really good job in uh, attracting a lot of viewers, and he's really good about the golf swing as well. So always when I get to speak with him about anything technical or uh, sharing some comments on students and all that, it's always an enjoyable conversation. So I do want to thank Travis in advance for uh, allowing me to guest host this show once a month. All right, so we're going to jump right into this Q&A and get started. Um, first question, I want to jump in just purely, um, you know, some stuff that I get asked a lot of times, which is what is my nationality? I know it's not as technical of a question, uh, but I do want to talk about it a little bit. Obviously, I'm Canadian. I'm born in Canada, born in Montreal, never left my hometown. All my friends and family are here. I'm very close to them. Um, and so I am Canadian, born and raised, although my background is not Canadian. As you can tell, I don't look like your typical uh, a Canadian. I am half Italian and half Iranian or Iranian, however you want to pronounce it. Uh, my father's from Iran, mother's from Italy. I was born here. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's just some quick answers for everybody. Um, all right. So let's jump into the actual golf swing stuff, technical stuff here. What is your favorite type of player to work with? I get this question all the time. Uh, and honestly, it's very straightforward. Someone who's open and attentive to learning. I am not going to be the type of coach who's going to give people way too many things to work on where it becomes overwhelming for players. I think it's a big mistake that a lot of coaches make. And that's why a lot of people get really discouraged from wanting to take lessons is because of the fact that like somebody comes to see a coach, uh, the coach gives them five, six, seven things to think about. The player is going to go to the range. You're going to expect that player to do all those things. There's no shot, right? It's just unrealistic. And so what ends up happening, player gets discouraged. Player doesn't get better. Player doesn't want to take lessons, not only with that coach, but in general sometimes. And there's a lot of people that have those strong opinions about coaches on the internet, about bad experiences they've had. All I want for the players to be open and attentive to the suggestions I'm giving them. And I want them to be somebody who's going to put the work in my pet peeve as a golf coach. And I think this goes for every golf coach who's out there. I am not a huge fan of players who are going to take a lesson with someone. The coach is going to give them something to work on. They're not going to have worked on it at all between the previous time the coach saw them. And then the next uh, lesson, and then the player somehow expects that they're ready to move forward with something new. That's just not the reality of it. The reality is it takes time, right? What I tell people is it's not even always about doing a better job with things. A lot of times it's about taking ownership of the changes you made. Meaning if you're trying to change a club face from five degrees open to square, just because it's square now once doesn't mean you're ready to move forward. I want you to get comfortable with it being square for the next 
you know, five, six, seven practice sessions. That's where your skill gets developed. The technique side might be improved after one lesson, but it doesn't mean you're going to trust it. Doesn't mean you're going to be able to repeat that on the golf course. Doesn't mean you're able to actually develop skill and ownership of that change. That takes repetitions, right? And not just repetitions on the range and block practice. It takes repetition on the course where there's a little more nerves, there's penalties involved all of a sudden, and shots have more meaning. They have more value to them. That's where true ownership actually comes in. So my favorite type of player to work with is someone who's going to put the time in, right? And the time in doesn't need to be something crazy. I'm not going to be someone who's going to tell a player to go work on their game for, you know, two hours a day, every single day between lessons. Like that's just so unrealistic. People have schedules, people have other things going on in their lives. I'm totally aware of that. Not everybody who's going to come in is just purely dedicated to golf and nothing else. The reality is we have social lives, right? We have work demands. We have all sorts of other things going on that limit how often we're able to practice, which is fine. But if you can just put in a little bit of time between lessons and start to get that skill, that trust, that ownership there, that is my favorite type of player to work with. That and just being attentive in the lesson. You know, I'm not going to give you, like I said, seven things to work on. So if I give you something to work on, I don't want some sort of aggressive rebuttal on why you think it's wrong. I'm going to happily explain to you why I think it is the right suggestion. At the end of the day, it's up to you to go and work on it if you want. If you don't believe anything I'm saying, then don't work on it and go see another coach. Like, by all means, do that. One of the things that I pride myself on is I always make sure that when someone leaves my lesson, it's not just about them getting better. I'm not going to just throw sticks in the way and make their movement look good. It's about understanding what you do. One of the things I prioritize a ton in my lessons, I want the player to leave there knowing not only what they need to work on, but why and how they need to work on it. That's just as important as the what part. And so if you're going to be open, you're going to be attentive and you're going to put some time in between lessons. That's all I ask for. Honestly, it's irrelevant whether you draw the ball, fade the ball, about your skill level. If you're a tour player, if you're a 20 handicap, I don't care. I just want someone who's going to be very open and it's going to be a fun environment of learning. Okay. Um, so, yeah, that's my answer on that one there. A little more of a technical question, and I definitely want to jump into this in, in quite a bit of detail here. Um, someone asked, and, and I get this question again a lot, just like the other one, of I'm trying not to early extend. Right. They've put the chair behind them. They're keep trying to keep their butt on the wall. They're doing everything in their power on the range, not to really extend, but it still happens. This is the exact word for wording, right? I'm trying not to really extend, but it still happens. How come? Question mark. Well, I'll tell you why. There is always going to be a reason why your body does some form of a compensation at the bottom of the swing that you dislike visually. That can come in the form of a flip. It can come in the form of like a stall and a hangback with the upper body. It can come in the form of early extension. It can come in so many different forms, right? There's always going to be a reason why your body does it. We don't just go to the range and magically develop some early extension out of nowhere, right? And it just stays there forever. Now, outliers exist. There might be a player whose only problem is the early extension. And that's something that if you fix it, they'll automatically get better. And those are really easy players to work with, right? They have one quick problem, you fix it, problem's gone, ball flight gets functional, you're good to go. And players like that do exist. But in my experience, most players who struggle with early extension have a problem that happened earlier in the golf swing. And the early extension, believe it or not, is their body's attempt at trying to make the swing functional. The early extension is not happening to create bad results. That's what is super important to understand. The early extension exists for you to actually give yourself a chance of hitting your intended target. If I'm standing square and my target's right in front of me, 
Well, if I early extend, I might struggle. There's going to be a lot of timing elements that are going to come from early extension. There's going to be a lot of flipping. There's going to be a lot of early releasing. There's going to be all sorts of other problems that are going to come in. But if I time it up correctly, I have a chance of hitting my target. What that basically means is if I don't have the early extension in my golf swing, my odds of hitting my target are actually reduced. So the early extension, although it's not something that's aesthetically pleasing, like people hate seeing it in their golf swing, and every second person who sends me a video shows me early extension and they hate it and they want to get rid of it, I get it. I totally understand. What you need to remember is early extension is actually happening for a good reason, not for a bad reason. Meaning if you don't early extend, your odds of hitting your target are reduced. So you have to see it as a good band-aid, not a bad one. Okay. So how do we go about getting rid of early extension? Well, we need to understand what are the possible causes of why a player might actually early extend. Club face being open. That is the number one bread and butter problem that we see when it comes to early extension. Why do we early extend when our club face is open? Well, because if you're not early extending, it means that you're staying in your posture. It means that you're rotating probably a little bit better and you're not stalling and jumping, right? Well, the better a player rotates and the less they stall, the less they're going to release their hands and arms, meaning they're not going to over-rotate the forearms. They're not going to flip at it so much where the wrists are going to turn over really quick. And they're probably not going to uh, have a lot of turnover on the club face as a result of that, right? If my club face is coming down a little bit open and I don't early extend, I'm not going to square the club face as fast through the ball, meaning the odds are my club face is going to stay open through impact. All that's going to do is either lead to a block if I'm swinging from the inside or it's going to lead to a push cut or a massive slice if I'm cutting across the ball. In either scenario, the early extension is actually there to give you a chance of scoring the face. Your body is standing taller through impact. I'm not rotating my body as fast. But what that means is now I am actually throwing my wrists and my arms at the ball, meaning my hands and arms are speeding up through impact as opposed to slowing down that's actually giving me a chance to square the club face that is open. So yes, the early extension sucks. We don't like it. We don't like seeing it visually. I totally get it. But if that club face is open, the odds are that early extension exists to give you a chance to square it. It's not doing something else. Meaning if you didn't have the early extension, you're not going to give yourself a good chance of squaring that club face. You're going to lead to a lot of poor fairways, a lot of poor missed greens, and so on. What is the second reason why a player might potentially early extend? A shaft angle that is too upright in the downswing. What does that mean? It means that when the club comes down on too steep of a plane, too vertical of a plane in the downswing, the early extension, again, although we don't like it, is a shallowing move. So a lot of times what we see is a player is early extending, but believe it or not, as they're coming down, the club's angle is very, very upright. Now, why are we early extending? What is that accomplishing to the steep shaft, right? That's obviously the inevitable follow-up question to this. Well, I'll tell you, if I'm going to rotate my body and stay in my posture a little better, we spoke about how it affects the club face. How does it affect the shaft angle? Well, the more my body rotates in the downswing, I'm going to take this club, no matter where it is, assuming it just stays in a constant position, rotate my body well in the downswing, I'm actually going to bring my hands in club more in front of my body. Meaning, all else equal, rotation without the early extension 
is a steepening move to the club. It steepens your attack angle and it brings the club head more in front of your body. If your shaft angle is already very upright in the early stages of your downswing and you don't early extend and you rotate well, you are going to cut way across that golf ball. Believe it or not, there are a lot of really high handicappers who rotate pretty well through the ball. The problem is the rotation doesn't match up with the rest of their golf swing. They have a club angle that's too steep. They have a club face that's too open, but they're rotating really well, which is actually doubling up on the steepness. Now they're cutting way across the golf ball. Face angle stays open because it's not squaring as fast and it becomes a nightmare situation, right? And so in that, in that scenario, in that environment there, yeah, we dislike the early extension. I mean, of course we do, right? Again, we don't like seeing it visually, but what you need to remember here is that the early extension is actually helping you. How does it help? Well, if I stand there and you can put yourself in a golf posture while I'm talking through this, if you're listening to this podcast, right? You can put yourself in a golf posture. If you come out of it and you early extend, meaning your spine is straightening out, not staying bent over. Well, what does that happen to the hands of the club? Well, the hands and clubs start to drop more behind my body, meaning it actually takes an upright shaft angle that's too steep and it's to lay it down. It's not the best way to do it. It's not the most efficient way to do it, but it's giving you a chance to not cut across the ball. It's giving you a chance to swing a little more neutral or from the inside of the golf ball. That would theoretically help you with your ball flight. And then obviously the real extension also allows the hands to catch up so that the face angle doesn't stay too open. Those are the two most common reasons by far. Face angle being too open, club shaft angle being a little too steep. The early extension is giving you a chance of improving those poor elements in your golf swing. So we don't like it, but obviously it needs to exist in that situation. So when this player asks me, I'm trying not to early extend, but it still happens. Why does it still happen? Well, I'd be willing to bet that one of those two elements are off. And again, outliers exist. It's very possible that the club shaft angle is actually in a relatively shallow position as it is, meaning it's not coming down on too steep of a plane. And the club face is actually in a pretty good spot as well, right? And it's not too open. Why does the player early extend? Well, that early extension is just going to make them swing way too far from the inside in a lot of cases, too shallow into the ball, and they're going to end up struggling. That is a situation where all you do is get rid of the early extension and the pattern potentially matches up really, really well, and you don't need a secondary adjustment, right? But in most cases, and I would say like 98, 99% of cases, you're going to have one of those two elements that's out of position or potentially both. And you need to improve those areas before you can get rid of the early extension or else you're going to end up in this vicious cycle where it's like you're trying to get rid of it. It doesn't work. You end up back at square one. You try to get rid of it. You are behind you. You're sitting on the wall. But no matter what you do, your hips kick forward. Your weight goes into your toes in the downswing. Your spine extends and you end up in trouble. Right. And we see that happen often, often, often. Um, and I do these like Twitter Q and A's where I have people send in swings and we do like a swing review session for like 25, 30 minutes. I do them like once every couple of weeks or once a month. So many of those golfers are falling into that same trap. It's so unfortunate, but that's just the reality of it. Right. So if you can fix those two areas, or if you're somebody who really extends, my first suggestion would be guide your eyes towards those areas in the downswing. Look at where your club angle is in the early part of your downswing. Look at where your club face is in the early part of the downswing. If one of those two things are out of position or potentially both, Odds are you can't get rid of the early extension just yet. So I'm just trying to train players where to guide their eyes if they have certain patterns. That way, you'll be able to self-diagnose a lot easier, right? Rather than, um, you know, going and searching on an endless loop on YouTube of like these how to get rid of early extension videos when in reality, most of them are not talking about these two elements and your early extension is going to continue to exist. So I hope that makes sense for everybody. And, um, you know, one thing I want to specify here for all the listeners 
if you are somebody who um, any of this information that I give out in future podcasts or in this one as well, if any of it confuses you even slightly or it's a little too technical, please reach out to me. I would be happy to clarify this stuff for you, right? I would be happy to dive into a little bit more detail uh, for you or cater my communication to your type of learning just so that you get where I'm coming from with this because I believe this information is super important and it only helps to know this stuff, okay? Now, next question. What should I ask a coach before buying a package of lessons? I love this question because as a coach, we're always thinking about the other side, right? We're always thinking about we're going to send in a questionnaire to players. We're going to ask them things like, what is your handicap? What is your current ball flight? What is your strike issue tendency? What is your ball flight issue tendency? Have you worked on anything lately? Do you have any physical limitations? And so on and so forth. And we can dive through the whole checklist on the type of questions I'd love to ask players. But this question is actually on the other side of it. What should I be asking the coach before buying a package? And that's a great question. I will say this. Just having a conversation with the coach beforehand, if you're interested in having uh, a lesson with them, would tell you a lot. How are they communicating with you? What type of questions are they asking you, right? If a, if you're going to take a lesson from a coach and the coach is not asking you many questions beforehand and like you haven't even hit a ball yet and he's trying to make adjustments or she's trying to make adjustments, I'd be a little weary of that because the reality is you can't make an adjustment on a player without actually seeing everything and understanding everything. I'm not going to have a player come into my lesson with a crazy, crazy strong grip and immediately tell them, hey, your grip's too strong before I even swing the club. How do I know that his grip doesn't need to actually be that strong? Maybe it actually matches his pattern really well or her pattern really well, right? So what I would say is have a conversation with the coach. Look into if they're actually asking you questions, what type of questions they're asking you. And at the end of the day, look at their portfolio if you can, right? We have the benefit now of all these great coaches that are out there. A lot of them are putting their information on the internet. So get an idea of how they communicate just based on their social media presence see what their repertoire of players looks like. Are they working with a lot of great players? Have they brought a lot of players' handicaps into better spots? Um, Are they exclusively working with beginners? Yes, the easy thing to look at is how much they charge. I totally understand that part of it. You know, most people are going to base it off their, um, you know, just their financial possibility. And I understand that. But at the same time, you know, I had this question with somebody, which is, um, it was along the lines of like, why would I pay X amount for you when I can pay such and such amount from another coach who charges, let's say, one third of the price of you? Well, it's because if I'm confident in myself as a coach, maybe I can get you to that same position in one third of the amount of time. So at the end of the day, you're spending the same amount of money. It took you three lessons with some coach to get somewhere. It took you one lesson with me to get somewhere. You're paying the same amount, but I saved you two hours of time that you can go and practice now. right? And that's me. I'm a very confident coach. Uh, I feel like I have a very strong understanding of the golf swing. I feel like I work with a lot of really good players. I know what the process of improvement looks like. Maybe not every coach is like that. I totally get it. There's a lot of coaches out there who are really good who don't charge a lot either. You can go and see them as well. But what I would answer to your question, what should I ask a coach before buying a package? Well, look at their online social media presence if they have one. Look at the repertoire of players. Look at how they communicate and have conversations with them. Just be like, you know, If you ask more technical stuff, how would they come back and answer you? Say, hey, I've been working on this and this. What do you think about that? Just see how they answer your question. A lot of times you'll get a lot of information just based on how a coach communicates back with you. If that coach is immediately throwing out a bunch of super technical stuff without really understanding if you know the technical stuff or not, might be a little bit intense of a lesson. So 
seeing how a coach communicates, in my opinion, is the number one important area above all else. Honestly, even above the social media um, like repertoire of players, I just want to see how a coach is actually going to talk to me during the lesson. Are they going to actually go back and forth with me and not just like throw in a bunch of super technical things to work on where it might be too overwhelming? Um, I hope that helps. Any drills for paths that are too far inside out? Uh, so somebody is obviously swinging too far from the inside of a golf ball. Let's go through that in, in a broader spectrum first, and then we'll dive into more specific detail. Okay. What happens when a player swings too far from the inside? Well, a couple common themes. Number one, if your path gets too far from the inside, the two most likely outcomes in terms of a ball flight miss is either going to be a block or a block that even has some fade to it. So as a right-handed golfer like myself, that means a ball that starts to the right of my target and either holds its line or even fades beyond that point, right? Or you're going to see a pull draw. So if I'm swinging too far from the inside, it's not going to be a straight pull. Keep in mind, the ball flight has little curve to it if the club face angle and the direction I'm swinging into the ball from match each other, the club path. When club face and club path match each other, the ball doesn't have curve to it. It might start offline. If I'm swinging from the inside by two degrees and my face angle is open by two degrees as well, those two numbers match each other. The ball's going to start two degrees to the right of my target and it's just going to hold its line. Right? Does that make sense? There's no curve to it. If I'm swinging too far from the inside and as a right-handed golfer, that means to the right, and then my ball starts left of my target, that means my face angle was closed, that impact. That ball is never just going to be a straight pull because I'm not swinging to the left through the ball. It's going to have a lot of pull draw curve to it. So the two most common ball flight tendencies we see with players who swing too far from the inside are either a push straight to the right as a right-handed golfer, or sometimes has some fade to it, or a pull draw, okay? not a straight pull, a pull draw. Sometimes even a snap hook if it's really aggressive. Well, then in that situation, any drill that a player works on should be to reduce the effect of how far to the right, as a right-handed golfer, I'm swinging into the ball from. What are some possibilities? I'm not going to tell you what drill specifically that this player should work on because the answer is impossible to know without seeing their golf swing, right? Everything is very subjective. There's a lot of different ways a player can swing from the inside. The best way for that specific player to work on might be different than a different player who's swinging too far from the inside. So if my path is five degrees to the right as a right-handed golfer and a second player comes in and his path is also five degrees to the right, we might not necessarily be working on the same drills. I cannot stress that enough, right? Matchups exist so that you work on the things that are very subjective to your pattern, not to someone else's pattern, to yours. So let's dive into that in a little more detail. What are the possible ways? Well, one of the reasons why I see players swinging too far from the inside is the hands just work around the player way too much in the backswing. So as a right-handed golfer like myself, I start to take the club back, my hands get behind me, and they get really, really stuck too far behind my body. At some point, your hands get so far behind you at the top of your backswing, it gets really hard to ever bring them in front of your body again. And it causes the player to swing too far from the inside of the golf ball. In a situation like that, no amount of rotation, no amount of anything else is going to help that player. It might reduce the damage a little bit, but the real big problematic area is the fact that the hands are working around the player way too much. In a situation like that, you get the player's hands working a little more up in the backswing, not so much behind them. And the more upright, the taller your hand path gets in the backswing, 
the more on plane or on top of the plane you can swing on the golf ball, or at least feeling wise, the less inside out you're going to swing. So all else equal in that situation, if the hands are working behind the player way too much in the backswing, getting the hands a little taller and a little more in front of them in the backswing can really help limit how far from the inside you swing. And you can just put an alignment stick on the floor as a visual and work on it through that. Like that's totally fine too. That's not a problem. Okay. But that's only one possible solution. What are the other possible solutions? Sometimes it's a lack of downswing rotation. I mentioned how my body is going to influence the hands and club in front of me in the downswing, right? That was through the first, first question about the early extension and why a player can't do it. The more I rotate in the downswing, all else equal, if I leave the hands alone, the more I rotate in the downswing, the more the hands are going to work in front of my body, the more the club is going to work in front of my body. So if I'm coming down on too shallow of a plane, a lot of times what I typically see is the player's pivot as a whole. So the way their body moves doesn't rotate very well. Sometimes it tilts too much. Specifically, the pivot might be the problem. Do you feel like you are constantly overshooting greens or coming up short because you choose the wrong club? Well, if that's the case, today is your lucky day because I'm proud to announce my brand new partnership with the boys over at Pinned Golf. Their brand new Ace Range Finder is amazing and it's only $199. I've been using it for a couple weeks now and I was blown away with the quality. It has a slope technology, pin locked vibration technology. So you know exactly when you are locked onto your target tour lever accuracy. And best of all, it is powered by a USB charge so you can forget about those little batteries every other rangefinder makes you buy. One 45-minute charge lasts you 50-plus rounds. I love it. Our friends over at Pin Golf are hooking up all of our listeners with $25 off and free shipping when you use code STRIPESHOW. That's code STRIPESHOW. I'm telling you. For $175, you simply cannot beat the Ace Rangefinder. Head out over to pingolf.com and get yourself the Ace and get dialed in. If I'm at the top of my swing and then all of a sudden my upper body starts to tilt back away from the target, right? If my target's this direction, so for those who are listening, let's just say the target's in front of me and my body is tilting away from the target, meaning I'm tilting backwards towards my back foot, I'm going to drop the hands and club too far behind my body in the downswing. A lot of times my pivot itself is the problem. So yes, you can work the hands and club a little taller in the backswing. If you're somebody whose hands get really, really far behind you, that's one way to help for sure. Another way to help is to fix the pivot, meaning maybe try to avoid tilting back so much. Maybe try to speed up the, how fast your body rotates through the ball. A lack of rotation or a lack of, of efficient tilting, which means that you're tilting back as opposed to like turning through the ball. Well, the pivot as a whole could be a huge reason why you're swinging too far from the inside. Start to change them. Don't hang back so much. Start to rotate your chest a little faster and a little better through the ball or even rotating your hips better through the ball, depending on what part of the pivot obviously is the problem. All of a sudden, you can swing a little more neutral into the ball, meaning not so far from the inside. Those are just two solutions. There are so many others. The most common way people go about it and in my opinion, probably not the most efficient, but there are some players that it can definitely help. And if you're in a tournament setting, I totally understand why you would want to go this route. These players just love to feel themselves trying to fade it to neutralize it, right? Meaning I'm swinging too far from the inside. I'm hitting big draws. 
I'm just trying to feel the club come down on a steeper plane. I'm trying to throw my hands and club out in front of my body. I'm just trying to feel like I'm swinging a little more left through the ball as a right-handed player to help me fade it. Yes, there are going to be certain very small situations in which a player can actually improve doing that because sometimes the body moves well and the hands are in a good spot, but the club just overly shallows. I mean, those, those situations don't happen very often, if I'm being completely honest. But I can see why a player would want to go that route just to neutralize how shallow they're coming into the ball. Right now, we can dive into all sorts of things about this. Um, I'm going to make this a fun topic for the next podcast. I'm going to take a note of it. I want to talk about this in a little more detail because believe it or not, if a player truly understood a lot of situations in which they swing too far from the inside, you would be amazed to know how they get there. And it's not always because the hands are too far back or because the club's shallowing too well or because of the pivot. It could be something completely irrelevant, which is a snowball effect of compensations. But that's going to require such a lengthy answer that I can almost talk about that for an entire podcast, to be honest. Uh, So I would love to talk about that in more detail on the next one, if you guys want. But let's say, just for the sake of this, the two more common uh, drills that I typically give players, depending on where they are, is to either improve the pivot or to get the hands more out and up in the backswing as opposed to low and more around them. And those a lot of times will really, really help. Sometimes even the combination of the two, feeling the hands taller and more in front of them in the backswing as opposed to behind them and improving the rotation in the downswing. You combine those two areas, maybe half of both as opposed to all the way with one. You get a player really uh, swinging more neutral into the ball and not so far from inside out. Um, But yeah, at the end of the day, like I said, I can talk about this stuff for hours, but I hope that's not too overwhelming. I know that there's a lot of technical stuff in this um, podcast the last thing i want to do is like overwhelm people with too much science but obviously this stuff is fun for me as a coach to talk about um all right so let's keep going here how do you stop an over rotation of the upper body in the backswing now i will say this most really good players that we've done tests with a lot of times are somewhere around like 85 to 110, sometimes even 120 degrees of rotation of the upper body. So the best way to think about it, if you were to rotate 90 degrees from a square setup position, right, you would get the shoulder underneath the chin as you're turning in the backswing. That would be your 90 degrees range of motion. That's probably the standard that most people go by. It's an easy visual, assuming, again, that your chest is obviously square in your setup position. So people align open or close. Assuming your uh, chest is square in your setup position, most people look for a certain range around 90 degrees, which is about the average. I would say probably more the good player somewhere around 100 degrees of of range of motion, right? How do you stop over-rotating? Over-rotating, you're assuming this player is doing like 120, 130, 140 degrees of, of upper body rotation. First of all, your flexibility or mobility just to be able to rotate that far back is really impressive. So if you are over rotating your upper body in the backswing, the first thing I'll say is think of that not only as just the negative in that area, attach a positive frame of thinking to that because you have incredible mobility to be able to rotate that far back. And I can assure you, I don't have that mobility. I know a lot of people who don't have the mobility, but if you can get there, that's phenomenal. How do you stop doing it? Well, believe it or not, I rarely look at the chest itself when it comes to this. It's all about the hinging of the club. Now, I would love to show a visual of this. Um, The next uh, podcast that we do, I was about to say the next lesson. Sorry about that. The next podcast that we do 
uh, where I talk about the whole uh, swinging too far from the inside. And I want to dive into more details on that. I'm going to attach a lot of visuals to this. So if you're somebody who's more of a visual learner, as opposed to um, learning more through audio, um, feel free to check us out on the YouTube clips and all that. There will be visuals attached to this as well. But for this one, okay, so the over-rotation of the upper body and the backswing. A lot of times, players don't hinge the club very well. And when I say hinge the club, I'm thinking of your generic upward hinging of the wrists. So like you put your palms together, you stick your hands out, and you literally just hinge up, right? Some people uh, like to use different words for that. The actual scientific term would be called radial deviation, just an upward hinging of the club. So think of like your thumbs and just pointing your thumbs more up towards your own body, let's say, right? If your hands were sticking out in front of you, that would be an upright hinging. That would be called radial deviation. If you are lacking that in your backswing, meaning you're very dead handed, you don't have a lot of that hinge, right? Your wrists are much more passive as you're taking the club back. Well, if you rotate to 90 degrees and you have a very little amount, a very small amount of upright hinging, upright hinging, right? A lot of times you're probably not going to hit the ball very far. Yes, a lot of speed comes from using the ground. Yes, a lot of speed comes from how fast your body moves and how fast you rotate and all that, right? There's rotational speed and there's vertical speed and all that. And that's important, the torque and, and all that. And we can get into details on that. But a lot of speed comes from your hands and arms, a lot, okay? If you are somebody who is not hinging the club efficiently, you are not going to have a lot of speed. Try hitting the ball as far as you can on the range, and you guys can all do tests on this. Every guy and girl who's listening to this right now, okay? Try to hit the ball as far as you can on the range by locking your wrists in and your setup position, meaning you're not going to hinge the club at all. You're going to be very dead-handed, very stiff-wristed, and just try to rotate back to 90 degrees and try to hit the ball as far as you can. I guarantee you, you are going to hit that ball nowhere relative to where you typically hit it. You're going to lose a lot of club head speed. You're going to lose a lot of distance immediately. So what happens in a lot of situations is that a player is not using their hands and arms very well. They're not hinging the club very efficiently. And so what ends up happening, the snowball effect from that, is that rather than actually curing the problematic piece itself, which is the wrists and the lack of hinge, what happens a lot of times is the player rotates their body an extraordinary amount. That excessive upper body rotation is not happening on its own as an isolated event. Now, again, outliers exist. It's very possible that somebody just has crazy mobility. And even if they're hinging the club well, they crazy rotate their upper body. To be honest, in those situations, usually players have crazy club head speed and it's not necessarily a bad thing. But if you are over rotating your body in the backswing and you're not a high level player and you're really struggling, Start by looking at the hands, arms, and wrists and how they move. If you're very dead-handed, meaning the club shaft is not standing up early enough in your backswing, and standing up doesn't necessarily mean like an outside takeaway. That's not what I'm implying here. I'm talking about think about where the grip is. Think about the handle of the club and the grip, getting the butt end of the grip to point down to the ground sooner. So it's not even about being inside or outside in the takeaway. It's about the shaft standing up in an upright position by creating more vertical hinge. If you do that well and you turn to 90 degrees or 100 degrees of upper body rotation, you will actually notice that your club might actually look really good from face on in terms of 
how long the backswing gets. When you start to lose out on that wrist hinge and you're very dead handed and you're not standing the club up early enough, you are lacking that radial deviation, which is the scientific term. A lot of times you're not going to hit the ball very far. Your swing's going to look super short and super awkward. And a situation like that, we typically see an over rotation of the upper body to offs, meaning your way of generating speed has been to over rotate the upper body to compensate for the fact that your wrists are moving poorly or not very efficiently, very inefficient uh, in the golf swing. If you train your wrist to move better or you see a specialist like me or someone else to train your wrist how to move better, you would be able to get rid of that excessive upper body rotation really quick. But again, these things never, or I won't say never because that's a very strong term. It's a bold term to use. They rarely happen in isolation. It's not often that you see a player just magically over rotating the upper body relative to everything else and they end up out of sequence. Like that just doesn't happen very, it's just not very common. Let's put it that way. Okay. All right. Next question. How do full swing changes affect the short game? One of my good buddies in this golf industry is Jeff Pierce. Jeff Pierce has worked with Brooks Kepka on a short game. He's worked with all sorts of players, Scott Stallings and so on. The list is endless. One of the things that Jeff and I had a conversation about, and I love the way he worded this, and I want to repeat this to you guys, and I'm going to give him credit because um, he has helped me a ton with my coaching as it relates to the short game. Okay, There is an inverse relationship between the full swing and the short game, meaning what makes players really good with their long game typically penalizes them with the short game and vice versa. It is really hard to be elite at both because they require different things. What do we want in the full swing? Shaft lean, a lot of speed, compression, taking spin off the ball, sending it a mile, right? Hitting it as far as possible. That's great. And that's great for the full swing. For the short game, that's not great. Have you ever tried to chip around the greens with a ton of shaft lean and the leading edge digging into the ground? and the ball position back, and a ton of ball speed and compression, usually it's not very ideal. What are the best players around the world doing? They're trying to take ball speed off. They're trying to take speed off the golf ball. That way they can land the ball softly, excuse me, and they can predict how that ball is going to then react on the greens. Too much shuffling, too much compression around the greens is usually a problem. We're trying to give you a higher margin for error. We're trying to give you a better chance at nipping the ball off the turf, making a lot easier solid contact where the sole of the club glides across the turf. The old school way of saying that is using the bounce, right? We're trying to use the back end of the sole of the club to glide across the ground without digging. Usually that means not having a ton of shuffling, right? Usually that means the handle of the club being a little taller, taking the heel off the ground so that it doesn't dig so much allowing yourself to come in a little more neutral with the shaft at impact, not the shaft leaning forward so much where we would call that that shaft leaning, that compression. So there's an inverse relationship there. So players who have a ton of shaft lean on their full swing, a lot of times struggle around the greens and vice versa. That is also why you see really dominant drivers of the ball who are not as great with their short game and vice versa, right? Luke Donald is one of the best wedge players on the planet. I'm sorry, Luke Donald's driver stats aren't great. And he would be the first to admit that. Vice versa, the same goes for the other side of it. Like, look at guys who are really, really good drivers of the ball. Not many of them are great wedge players. Again, Zach Johnson, one of the best wedge players on the planet. Not the best off the tee, right? He doesn't 
hit the ball a mile is somewhat accurate, which is great, but he doesn't have that speed. But obviously, he's really good with his wedges. So I don't want to talk too much about tour players. That's very subjective, and I don't want to offend anybody. Let's just, for the sake of this, end this by saying this question, I mean, by saying there's an inverse relationship there. So, yes, being really good with your full swing and all those things that we want of the shaft leaning, the compression and the low uh, spin rate and all that, that's great for your full swing to hit the ball very far. But that shaft lean and all of that stuff in the short game, a lot of times can be really penalizing for players. We want to be able to give you a higher margin for error. Tour players are outliers. Some of them have patterns where they have a lot of shuffling around the greens. They have the ball position way back in their stance and they're hitting down on it. And it's coming out super low. They're outliers. They're able to pull off shots that have a small margin for error because their skill set is that high. They're the best of the best in the world. They're the 0.1 of the 0.1 of the 0.1% of people on the planet. Your everyday recreational golfer who goes out and plays golf on the weekends has no shot of repeating that pattern around the greens. We see it every day. I see it every day. Travis sees it every day. Every other coach does as well. So trying to be able to separate those two areas and understand that there's an inverse relationship there. You don't necessarily want the same thing for both is super important. Um, So if you're going to work on short game stuff, keep it just in the short game. If you're going to work on full swing stuff, keep it just in the full swing. Don't take your full swing mechanics and try to bring them into your short game and vice versa, because one of those areas is going to get penalized depending which way you're going with it. Okay. All right. Last question I want to talk about here. Um, I hit pulls when I try to rotate in the downswing. Why does that keep happening? Well, this is a kind of a follow-up to one of my other questions. I probably answered this question in the one about the early extension and the one about swinging too far from the inside. What happens to your shaft angle and your hand depth, your hand path, when you try to rotate faster, better, stronger. I sound like Daft Punk. When you try to rotate better in the downswing, take a look at this here. If you're watching this on YouTube, watch this visual, okay? My hands are in a certain spot in my backswing, right? Now, let's say my club is here. If I try to create rotation in the downswing, as I rotate my body, where are my hands and club going? They're working more in front of my body. Rotation is a steepening move to the shaft, right? It is a steepening move to the attack angle, assuming it's happening forward and not rotating and hanging back, right? If I rotate through the ball, I'm going to steepen my shaft angle. If I'm hitting pulls, that tells me one thing and one thing only. I either didn't have enough hand depth in the backswing to offset what the rotation is going to do to my hands, meaning if my hands start up and in front of my body already and I try turning in my downswing, my hands end up too far out in front of me and they end up in trouble and I pull it, right? So my hands worked in front of my body too much because the starting point of that was already too much in front of me before I started to rotate in the downswing. Or my shaft angle was not shallowing out enough to offset that. Again, rotation of my body is theoretically trying to steepen the club, assuming nothing else changes in my golf swing. So in order for the club not to end up in front of my body, which is going to lead to me cutting across the ball and hitting pulls, the only way for me to offset that, I need the club shallowing first. That's why I always talk about this idea of rotational freedom. Rotational freedom essentially means lining up the variables in a way that will allow your body the ability to rotate freely and not suffer from a poor ball flight, right? That is what it is at the end of the day. That's the simplest way to think about it. So if I'm trying to rotate my body and I'm hitting pulls, 
something is happening that's causing my path to get too far inward through the golf ball, too far left as a right-handed golfer. It could be a lack of hand depth that's causing that. It could be the shaft angle is not shallowing enough to swing from the inside to offset the rotation, right? Something is happening that when I rotate my body, the path just gets left on me really quick as a right-handed player and I pull it. It could also be that the face angle is too shut. That's a, that's kind of more of a different separate conversation to have. It is a possibility, right? But obviously if you're trying to keep your club path from cutting across the ball and hitting pulls, the only way to do that, you got to offset what the rotation is going to do. Meaning you need to have the hands in a deeper spot first. You need to have the club shallowing better, or you need to make sure at some point in the downswing, some element is changing to make sure you swing more from the inside. It's as simple as that at the end of the day. And obviously, you know, we could talk about other band-aids to add of closing the alignment with the feet, which would help you swing more from the inside, which will offset the downswing rotation. There's so many different ways to go about it. But just understand that if you are hitting pulls when you try to rotate, it's because your body is not in the environment that will allow you to rotate. You do not have rotational freedom. You are lacking one of the main components of rotational freedom because you immediately suffer from a poor ball flight when you try to rotate, meaning rotation can happen, but it can only happen after you make sure that your path doesn't get compromised in that situation. It's a lot of scientific talk. I do apologize if I'm confusing anybody again with all of this, but um, the important part is to understand that, you know, there are things that you do need to look at in these areas. And if you understand like these main components, you can figure out the golfing really quick and work on all the micro details kind of around it. Okay. So next time what we're going to do is I'm going to talk in more detail on the whole, um, you know, how do I stop swinging too far from the inside? Why does it happen? Because I can dive into some really cool topics that I don't think people are talking about on the internet, to be honest, patterns that we see all the time. Players swing too far from the inside because the club angle is too steep. Think about that one. Already that works against each other, right? You immediately think about the club coming down on too steep of a plane. You immediately think that you're going to cut across the ball. That's not true. In a lot of cases, golfers actually swing too far from the inside when they do that. And that's going to be a fun conversation to have. But I would rather demonstrate that and talk that through uh, in a podcast visually as opposed to just like me on camera because it's something that I can talk about for hours. So I hope you enjoyed this. Uh, like I said, a lot of scientific talk. If any of this stuff confuses you, please reach out. I would love to clarify these answers for anybody. Uh, but yeah, we'll be doing this once a month. Again, just a special shout out to Travis. A uh, special shout out to Samantha Marks as well, who helped uh, help me set up this whole uh, podcast situation. Uh, wonderful team out there with the Stripe Show podcast. They do a great job. And uh, I'm very happy to be a part of it. So Let's get those games in order. Let's keep uh, breaking down scientific talk. Let's get everybody some more awareness into what's happening. And let's lower those scores, all right? Have a good day, everybody. Let's take a second to talk about the folks over at Encore Golf. Encore has earned a reputation across the golf industry and with golfers everywhere for its combination of value, performance, and customer service. Their team in Buffalo, New York is flipping the script on golf technology through perimeter-weighted balls made with the high-density particles and proprietary nanotransitional layer offering players enhanced accuracy, control, and distance. Encore recently added the Vero X1 to its suite of award-winning golf balls, one that already included the Golf Digest Gold-rated Elixir and Low Compression Avant 55. Through its full suite of golf balls, Encore can help transform any golfer's game. Visit EncoreGolf.com backslash Travis Fulton for more info about Encore and start revolutionizing your game. Now back to the Stripe Show podcast.